Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll be exploring why staff at Natural England feel overworked and undervalued, how regulation at the Environment Agency appears to be under increasing strain. We'll look at whether the Prime Minister's Brexit Freedoms Bill could liberate you from the tyranny of green tape using so-called Henry VIII powers, which don't sound especially progressive. And then we're going to discuss whether the new biodiversity net gain approach is creating gains for nature, for house builders, or perhaps even both. And finally, we will hand over to Simon and Gareth, our very own chemical brothers, who are going to be talking about a group of highly controversial pesticides, neonicotinoids, to be precise. Let's enter the eco-chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report, and I'm here, as usual, with journalist Tess Colley, Hello. And our editor, Jamie Carpenter. Hello. The first story we're going to look at is about natural England. I think many of us are aware by now that life at the Environment Agency is rough for frontline officers. But while I've been talking to whistleblowers there, Tess, you've been speaking to some folk at the Nature Regulator. Can you let us know what they've been saying? Yeah, well, um, they're not very happy because they're very overworked and they don't feel they're paid well enough for it and so overstressed by the work they're doing with increasingly fewer resources. I've spoken to people who've told me um, they've, you know, suffered stress-related physical symptoms like losing weight um, and being treated by their GP. And they've even, there's people, uh, one, one source told me, who they're taking second jobs just to kind of keep afloat. Another person knew somebody going into debt. And this is all crazy stuff, really. Mm. It's a it's a public body. Yeah. So is this something, did you get a sense of how widespread this is within the regulator? Yeah, so I, I spoke to three people and one of them used the term endemic, like it's across oh. the organisation, particularly at that sort of frontline officer level. Um, and I think there is a bit of a feeling of a us and them with management and a feeling mm. that the management aren't getting it. You know, you see Natural England are recruiting and they say, look, we know there's a resource problem. We're trying to fix it. Um, but they recruit for kind of senior managers mm. and not for frontline staff who are like maybe going out looking at the nature reserves, assessing uh, protected sites like triple SIs. Mm. I mean, that kind of, you know, taking second jobs and things. This is 2022. This seems completely insane. But we've been reporting not necessarily on, on those aspects, but the idea that the people at Natural England have not been happy with their pay for a number of years. Mm. Um, has there been no improvement for them? Um well, no, not really, not in terms of pay. Um, I'm according to Prospect, who is uh, they're one of the biggest union representing Natural England staff, and they're currently taking strike, uh, not sorry, and they're currently taking industrial action, not yet strike, but might well be if things don't change. Mm. They say that since 2010, workers in Natural England have suffered a two-year pay freeze yeah. and a 1% pay cap then for five years, which... Combined, there's a there's a public sector pay freeze uh, currently imposed by the Treasury, and all combined together, and Natural England have suffered more than other parts of the public sector. And Natural England, the workers, the people I spoke to, particularly agree for the fact that they look at even within Defra, kind of the Environment Agency, the Forestry Commission, they're all paid better than they are, and they think you know for the why same, for the same kind of grade, same, same grades. Position. Yeah, I mean, there's I looked at some analysis prospects had done and. For the same higher executive officer, which is not a junior role, it's sort of, you know, you've got quite a lot of responsibility. Pay range begins at 26,000 ish for Natural England. The same grade at the Forestry Commission begins at 35,000. Oh, wow. So yeah. it's very, it, it can be quite different. 
Yeah, that's significant. We've also reported that the Environment Agency and DEFRA, uh, staff at these organisations, have also um, expressed disappointment at um, their their pay levels. Um, mm. Can you say a bit more about that? Um, yeah, well, there's, so there's lots of different uh, unions representing uh, these different agencies and DEFRA, but they've all expressed basically a lot of big discontent with the pay offer. Um, and at the at the EA, the Environment Agency, one of the unions, uh, I believe it was Unite, mm-hmm. you know, said that staff staff may walk over this, right. but it, you know that's not to say it's they they've, they haven't got a ballot or a mandate yeah. for it. Like uh, Natural England do it within six months if they're not happy, they they can strike. When is that six months up? That's um, started in January. Okay, so right. Okay, so they've got till May. Jamie, what do you think would be the sort of broader impacts of this? If, you know, morale across these agencies is particularly low, um, what could be the sort of knock-on impacts of that? Well, well, I think the, the revelations from your stories, Rachel, and also Tessie's stories about Natural England, are they, they obviously have a, a human dimension. They're, they're, it's not good for, for staff to feel like that. But it also, in, in a broader sense, it it matters if you care about good environmental outcomes. So if, if you're, if regulators that are, concerned with safeguarding the environment don't have the resources they need and, and staff morale is low like that, then then can we really be confident that environmental factors will be afforded the appropriate weight when competing factors like economic growth are considered mm. in decisions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean one of the insiders I spoke to, they said that they're, you know, they're actively worried about brain drain at Natural England because you've got quite a lot of older staff kind of retiring or looking to leave and the younger people they're just not staying because they look at the situation and why would I stay here I'm so it's so stressful and I can't get anywhere I won't be paid enough um and so they're just not keeping the skills at a time when natural England their remits you know increasing all the time they're kind of got to advise on biodiversity net gain and environmental land management which are all going to be massive for the environment in the next decade yeah So moving on from one unhappy bunch of regulators to another bunch of unhappy regulators. Uh, If you've been listening to the Eco Chamber, you'll know that we've reported a number of times on how frontline officers at the Environment Agency are not happy. They're not able to get out and do their jobs. We thought we might leave it for this episode, but there have been more revelations in the interim. So we have to talk about this again. Now, we've found out a few more problems so I've spoken to some more people in the agency and people working close to the agency, and there are big issues around permitting. I think it's quite well known that the permitting delays, so the time be- between uh, a company applying for a permit and receiving a permit has been delayed and getting longer and longer. But now it seems that if you want a bespoke permit, for example, you can have to wait an average of 235 days, according to official documents. But actually, it's even longer than that. So... I've seen correspondence between businesses and the agency where these permits are taking months upon months upon months, even for them to be allocated a permitting officer. And then on a separate issue, I spoke to somebody about landfills who's saying that they can't appropriately assess landfill designs and permits related to landfills, and that they're having to be waived through because rejecting one creates more work and there aren't enough people to do that. So, Jamie, what is going on? The wheels sound like they are falling off, but it, but is that the case or am I just hearing from the most upset <laughs> a frontline officer and everybody else is deliriously happy? Well, I think, I mean, it's starting to look that like that in, in, in a sense. I mean, I think um, for the environment agency, there are some dangers in, in a sense of being seen as a, as a failing organisation. In particular, the river pollution furore sort of over over the last six or so months, and and the agency's response to the what is quarry odor problems have, yeah. have, have certainly 
caused a load of reputational damage to the agency and, and, and we can see that its leadership, Emma Howard Boyd and, and Sir James Bevan are, are very concerned about this and they've been they've been mounting a a rearguard action in, in recent days and weeks. So I think there's, there's a question now over whether a narrative begins to develop around the agency sort of being seen as a as a failing body and, mm. and if that does become the case then that's that's probably um not, not a great place for it to be. No, I mean, even in um, Westminster last week, where MPs are one by one stood up and said, you know, that the agency cannot regulate landfills anymore, especially where there are rogue operators, and are saying that the agency is not feared but mocked. Um, this is not a good look for the agency, and if they're fighting rearguard action, then they're going to be very, very busy, and I hope, they, hope they're good fighters. But as you say, I mean, nobody's calling for the environment agency to be scrapped. People are saying it needs more resource, but then insiders are saying, well, if there is more resource, it's not going to go to environmental protection, it goes to flood defence. So, you know, what has anybody had some constructive criticism that we can help them pass on? Well, no, but, <laughs> but, but I, think, I think that there, there hasn't been any suggestion of it being scrapped or abolished or anything like that. But I think it doesn't take too much to imagine that like an election manifesto or something that, that there might be a pledge to reform the agency or, or do something even more wholesale than that sort of thing that gets talked about at an election. I remember, I remember a long time ago now, before the 2010 election, where where a big issue was around the the government's housing plan, go the Homes and Communities Agency, and and the, the Tories were pledging to to abolish that at, at that point, and that kind of created a whole load of un, uncertainty and was really quite unhelpful for people working in the sector. So I think I think that's the sort of thing that. I guess it's in everyone's interest for for that to be avoided. It just doesn't play very well with the idea that you know this this government and successive conservative governments were really like to deregulate, and mm. if they're also detoothing and declawing the regulators at the same time, it's it's quite a convincing argument if that's the one that you're you're willing to yeah. accept. I mean, but, even with their farm inspectors, they recently hired fifty new farm inspectors to go out and um, check that farms are you know, not polluting and so on. And in, in the ads, it said they would have regulatory powers, enforcement powers. But actually what was turned out is that they don't and that they just have advice-led powers plus they're on temporary contracts. It just does seem that the political will isn't there and they just don't really want to upset the farming lobby or the developers or, or whoever it is, risks might need slapping. No, no. And I think, I think if, if, you, if you were to be cynical, you might, you might say... No, never, no, not here. We wouldn't do that on the <laughs> no. eco chamber at all. No. But um, it's kind of in the... Or if you were being cynical, you might think, that for the environment to be, be seen as, as failing because, um, as, as we've talked about before, I think the, the blame to a very large extent is, lies at the hands of the... The government and ministers to who are who are failing to give the regulators the money they need. Mm. Um, but but if if um, the regulators are seen as failing, then then the government can kind of point point the finger at them rather than actually address what the real problem is. Yes, Tess, can you see any parallels here with uh, the natural England with what's been happening over there? Um, well, yeah, I think from the people you you've spoken to and the comments you've reported on, there's there's this feeling that there's a dedicated group of environmentalists working at the environment agency and natural England and they're so frustrated to yeah. feel that they can't they're not actually doing the thing they came in to do very true um and I think that's a feeling that is shared between them and the idea they're not they're not being resourced to do the things they're being expected to do at least publicly when you know ministers stand up at conferences or in parliament say we're doing x y and z mm. is like well you know how <laughs> how <laughs> yes. are we doing this how indeed so regulation has never been one of uh, any conservative government's favourite words, as far as I'm aware, could be wrong. Um, but if you don't believe me, let's move on to the next story, which may remove any remaining doubt that you might have. 
So this is about the Brexit Freedoms Bill. So at the end of January, Downing Street announced it would introduce the Brexit Freedoms Bill that would allow ministers to change what it says is outdated EU law. This, of course, includes lots of environmental law, which is derived from EU directives. Uh, Boris Johnson says it's going to lead to the slashing of red tape that has been costing businesses to date around a billion pounds. So the main thrust is that this bill is going to enable changes to be made by ministers really quickly without the need to create primary legislation, which can take a really long time. But primary legislation also has a lot of scrutiny attached. So being able to do this in this kind of simplified way would remove some of that scrutiny, too. Um, that's why these powers have been called Henry VIII powers. Uh, Jamie, is this another mad deregulation drive or is it a practical move to tidy up some loose ends and take back control from Parliament as well as from the <laughs> the block? Yeah, well, it's, it, it does seem like the very opposite of taking back control, really. So if we're... <laughs> Mm-hmm. If, we're, if, we're, if we're talking about um, a process whereby these, these changes can be made by statutory instruments, the, the parliamentary scrutiny of those is, is kind of widely seen as inadequate. And I think, I think um, this isn't a case of kind of removing law that was kind of simply imposed on the UK by the EU. The, the, these things have actually been scrutinised by the European Parliament before they were transposed into UK law. So we're not really taking back control, are we, I don't think. But but, uh, <laughs> but, but I think I think at the moment there, there is a big question around what, what is actually in within the scope of this review and whether whether it does actually represent a kind of um, wholesale bonfire regulations mm. or, or whether the whether its um, scope is narrower than that. And I think depending on who you speak to, the, there are different views over whether this might be something to be alarmed about if you're concerned about sort of um, keeping regulations in place or, or whether the opposite is true. And actually, this is, there's, there's really no no kind of overt conspiracy to deregulate everything. Yeah. Tess, what are your feelings on this? Um, well, I think I agree with what Jamie said, but also uh, there's a lot of EU regulation that's already being reviewed by the government, such as the Habitats regulations, which anyone who's been listening to Eco Chamber will know about already. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in the last week, the DEFRA kind of revealed slightly more detail about what their review of the Habitats regulation is actually looking at, because it's been pretty vague up to now. Um, and one of the things they're looking at is to reduce the legal ambiguity um, and to rectify any problems caused by historic EU case law relating to the Habitats Directive. That's a quote. That's a loaded sentences, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, decode um, that. Well, I, I spoke to a lawyer from Lee Day, uh, Ricky Gamma. Alide cover a lot of um, environmental mm-hmm. um, legal issues. Um, and he reckoned that the Dutch nitrogen case is one that's likely to come into scope. And this one has been has had a lot of impact recently because what it's brought in is Natural England issuing legal advice to council saying that all new developments must uh, not add to the levels of nitrogen and phosphorus uh, in water bodies that impact protected sites. And that's obviously to protect them because the high levels of nitrogen and this sort of thing can really damage these environments. Uh, it's caused a massive headache, though, for developers. And I think if you are being cynical, um, <laughs> then you might say that they, they want to make things maybe not so difficult. Mm. But, yeah, that's one that's likely to be in scope. So, yeah, because part of the um, what people are expecting to be within the Brexit Freedoms Bill, which I hope it won't actually be called that when it's published, was that it might lead to the UK courts diverging from the past decisions of EU courts, which obviously everything you've just spoken about would fall under that. And Jamie, are there any others that uh, come to mind that uh, would have consequences today, but maybe not if we diverged? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I think I think um, as Tess was saying, the the um, the Dutch nitrogen ruling was, is a big one that's had a had a massive impact in terms of um, the the whole nutrient neutrality issue. Um, and another one that was a little bit before that was the the people over wind ruling. Um, I think I think that was in 2018, and that that had significant implications for developments where a habitats regulations assessment may be required. Um, and without going into too much detail, what what that meant was that. Um, many developments could no longer be screened out of requiring a full appropriate assessment and and that basically means more time and more consultation for developers. Mm. Um, Yeah, sounds like a great uh, money-saving move, doesn't it? To not have to pay regard to any of the previous uh, judgments from EU courts. Exactly. It doesn't doesn't take too much, again, if we're being cynical, it doesn't take too much to envisage a a scenario where developers might lean on on ministers to to use the bill to overturn those rulings, Jamie, in a way on. that yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, <laughs> with, with with no parliamentary scrutiny or limited parliamentary mm, scrutiny. Yeah. So let, let's uh, let's see. Yeah, let's see indeed. So Tess, we'll find out more about the uh, habitats regulations review in the Nature Recovery Green Paper. Do you know when? The, I know it's been delayed and delayed, but do you have a, a new date for us? I do. The, well, the latest I've heard, which was last week, is it's now due in March. Oh. So it's being kicked back another month. I thought it was. I thought it was this month, but it's moved again. It right. has moved again. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> great. Okay, well, don't hold your breath, uh, <laughs> listeners. Listener, no, don't do that. That's not funny. <laughs> well, uh, I wouldn't advise anybody to hold their breath. However, we have shelved Top of the Poops. I'm really very sorry about that. But Jamie's got something even more exciting for us. And it's to do with England's dirtiest digs, or as he better puts it, England's cleanest cities. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so um, very exciting development for ENDS is that we've just published our new Clean Cities Index. It's phenomenal. You have to go to the website and have a look now. Yeah, right away. <laughs> don't, don't stop listening. Maybe no, after the yeah. podcast. Headphones in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. So what we've produced is a ranking of England's fifty-five biggest towns and cities, and and you can use the ranking to see where's the cleanest and where's the dirtiest. So I, I thought for this section it would be good to start off with a few questions, um, and and Rachel and, and Tess are ready with their respective buzzers to guess. I don't have a buzzer. I have a bell. Bell. Okay. Yeah, and this is this is very exciting. So maybe before we start, can we can we just um, test those buzzers and, and bells? Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm going to just have to get mine off the floor, my bell. Yeah. Well, maybe we go to test first. I'll, just, I'll go first. Um, buzz. Excellent. Fantastic. Rachel. Ding. Amazing. <laughs> right. <Okay>. Ready. <laughs> no expense spent. <laughs> right, so I suppose you better start then. Okay. Mm. So so first, this is the most important question. Okay. So. Can you guess which is the cleanest city in England? Buzz. Tess. Oh, hesitate. <laughs> Hesitation. You can't do that. You can't just I'm don't so think excited about to it. Use my buzzer. <laughs> no, we need Paxman. No, he won't have that. Hesitate. You lose 10 points. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Ding. Uh, uh, go to Rachel. What, con- what constitutes mm. a city? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's why, that's why I hesitated. <laughs> okay, we'll go, we'll go for some, some nerdy detail now. So we, yeah. we used a... Um, a definition which is primary urban area, which is the measure of the the built up area of a city. So it, will, it won't just be one local authority; it might be multiple local authorities. Like London has mm. thirty two or thirty three, but that would be London would be the primary urban area. Mm. If that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Well, you automatically think something rural, don't you, or ruralish? Um, can yeah. I go? With, can I with, just go with Bath? I, I was. I was Ding bath buzz. <laughs> <laughs> it's not no. It's, oh. but, but it's not not. Um, 
Not far off, both in geography and in in, the, in that line of thinking. Buzz Bristol. No, but um, southwest though. What's down there? Southampton. Ding Southampton. Ding Portsmouth. <laughs> ding. Um. Is, there aren't that many. Ding more. Exeter. Exeter is the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> Places we know in the southwest. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that we need to do any more questions, but maybe we'll just go for the. <laughs> shall we just go for the? Where is the dirtiest yes. city in England? Mm. Oh, we might be a bit. We might sound terrible. Mm-hmm. Incorrect. I'm going to go ding Middlesbrough. Not Middlesbrough, no. Um, Manchester. No. Further north, further south? Further south. Oh. Ding London. London, yeah, oh, we're yeah, sitting in it. Yes, it's oh, London. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> the main reason for that is that we, we had to give, we had five major categories. One was air pollution and uh, okay. we gave air pollution quite a large weighting. And London's got some for sure. very serious problems with air pollution. Definitely. Um so yeah, so that was our that was our quiz. Mm. <laughs> Who won? Um, and Me? Uh, <laughs> we all <laughs> lost. <Yeah. laughs> We're all losing <laughs> today. Everyone's a winner, apart from London. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So and and, and if listeners um, are interested in checking out the um, the full index and a ranking, they can go to engreport.com forward slash cities. Um, there's loads to look at. There's the full ranking, maps, apps, dashboards, more than one. Um, so and that, that content's available to subscribers, but if you'd like to take a free trial, you can take a look if you're happy mm, to tempting. give your inside leg measurements and that stuff to our, <laughs> our team. <laughs> and for each city, you can see all those different, You can there's a map for each city, isn't there? Yes, and this is why I was moaning so much that we, we I, I say we, I, I took the decision to create a an individual city page for each of the 55 cities and in each of those you have all the full ranking and a bespoke map for that city with lots mm. of different things so you can see where the sewage spills are where the most polluted roads are yeah. what the ecological health of rivers are all that sort of stuff so there's loads to look at yeah go and check it out see what's going on near you hopefully it's clean and not too dirty Now, in this episode's deep dive, we're going to look again at net gain. This is the new approach set out in the Environment Act that will obligate developers to create at least a 10% gain for biodiversity when they're creating new developments. It's been talked about for a long time now, but finally, the government has published its plans for consultation, and some developers have even begun to put it into action. But this is an area Jamie knows all about. Can you please fill us in? Yes. So we have a huge unmet housing need in this country, um, and the government has a very ambitious, some might say unachievable, annual house building target <laughs> of, of around 300,000 homes a year. Um, and that, that was a manifesto commitment. Um, so that, that's what they're, they're aiming at. But um, but as well as this this housing crisis and this big big overarching housing target, we, we have a, a nature crisis. And, and we know that mm. the UK is one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. And, and that's, that's kind of where biodiversity net gain comes in. So this is the idea that we... We can increase biodiversity after development has taken place, and the idea is that it delivers more development, but also more nature at the same time. So it sounds it sounds perfect. Yeah. How how will that work in practice, though? Well, the Environment Act is, is kind of establishes the framework for this. So uh, what's going to happen is that essentially developers will be required to use a, a metric to produce a number, which is measured in biodiversity units, and that will be to quantify the level of biodiversity on a site. And before planning permission is granted they need to submit a plan that demonstrates how they will replace what is being lost right? and then add an extra 10% to provide the net gain. Okay. But getting that into the bill, that can't have been plain sailing, can it? I mean, there must have been some pushing and pulling from, from conservationists and developers on the other side. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it was it, it wasn't sort of as um, hotly contested as some of the other areas, like mm. um, the, the OEPs, independence, and sewage as well. Yeah, absolutely. But but it was it, it, it did come up quite a bit. And one of the one of the areas that was argued about was was the fact that the legislation requires biodiversity net gain sites to be maintained for thirty years at minimum. Yeah, um, and that, that that was seen by some opposition MPs and, and peers as inadequate and and an Achilles heel in the in the policy. I so, can imagine that the developers wouldn't want it to be much longer though because no, I mean, they just No, exactly. But if it, if it wasn't there for, you know, if it wasn't looked after for posterity, I mean what is what is the point? So the consultation is out now. So that's supposed to put meat on on the bone. So what's in the consultation? Yeah, so the consultation did did come out sort of a few weeks ago and um and it was it was um very people have been looking forward to it a long time because I think the 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 um Environment bill effectively kind of set the framework, but but the actual nitty gritty of how the policy was going to work was was a little bit unclear. So so what this consultation does is is kind of give us a far clearer picture of how the government expects the 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 regime to operate when it when it when it gets up and running. So there's 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 I think one one of the, one of the things that the consultation does is it kind of t- it tells us a bit more about it kind of answers the when question. So um, we we did we did already know that. The, the kind of main requirement for most schemes under the Town and Country Planning Act was, was going to be, this was going to kind of take effect two years after the, the bill got royal assent. Right. But we didn't know about nationally significant infrastructure projects. So one of, right. one, of the, one of the changes to the bill, one of the amendments, was that the net gain was going to be applied to big infrastructure as well as kind of not run-of-the-mill but, but kind of normal planning applications. Um, but we didn't know when. Um, and the, the consultation tells us that this is going to be no later than 2025 so it's it's going to be later than for most projects but um right but we do know now that's going to when that's going to happen it's quite a long way down the road can road all, all that kind of stuff um so would that still apply to things as large as hs2 where there's a hybrid bill underpinning the development no i think my understanding is that the the net gain will will only apply under under this this kind of legislation to Things that are specifically being decided via the planning act regime, so the, these right. kind of NSIPs. So mm. I'm not sure there's anything kind of that's going to be put down in law to deal with those. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. And so some developers are already putting it into practice, you know, before it's actually been you know, probably mandated. And have you heard about those developments or you know how they're being received and how they're progressing? Yeah. So I mean, I think I think we do, we, and we have seen in sort of. Uh, some planning, big planning applications or planning permissions recently that the, the these things are already. Um, it's not uncommon now to see planning permissions that do do come with a net gain requirement sort of with them. So mm. and they, they might be kind of higher than the the ten percent. Um, but there are some signs that that net gain is actually where, where it is being implemented by by kind of um, councils that it's not not going entirely as as people expected. So How come what's going on? Well. One thing is around the the issue of where gains are going to be delivered, whether they'll be on site or off site. And and Defra anticipated that twenty five percent or a quarter would be off site, but um, right. but, but there has been some research from by the University of Kent who, who and and they looked at what was going on at what they're calling early adopter councils, so places like um, Cornwall, Leeds, South Oxfordshire, Tunbridge Wells, and some other ones, mm. um, and and they found that net gain is almost entirely taking place on site. Um, which is kind of surprising. Um, yeah, I think that would be more difficult for them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But but I think the, the the picture is kind of more complicated than that. In in that they they one of the things they found that was that the the net gain policies resulted in a thirty four percent reduction in green spaces and, and non urban areas, 
and and their their takeaway was that biodiversity benefits had come almost entirely from what they're calling in quotes smaller areas of higher quality habitats years later in the development cycle. So there've been reduction in green spaces as a result of the net gain. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So so one, <laughs> one so what? so one one example, and this this is being described. Um, helpfully by the researchers as ecologically disastrous. Yeah, <laughs> sounds it, certainly <laughs> so, does. So in this example, the developer proposed building on 75% of an abandoned pasture and they would then enhance the existing grassland to score four times the points within the metric. But the enhanced grassland is basically confined to patches between the new homes. And in doing so, they they effectively achieve the 10% net gain. So they're trying to find ways around it already, and it's not even been actually mandated yet. Yeah, exactly. So, so the question. So, and I think I think the question that the, the researchers say that this poses is whether whether this is actually a genuine improvement in biodiversity mm. or whether it's actually someone abusing the the metric. Yeah, I have an opinion <laughs> <laughs> on that. Um, are there any other um, areas of concern? I think I was speaking to a councillor some time ago and they were saying that they just can't argue with developers because they will come with these enormous, very expensive reports compiled for them by environmental consultants and they'll have spent hundreds, about tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds on all these assessments. And then the council may not even have an ecologist in-house and they've got to sort of challenge you know, the, the conclusions of this report and they just don't have the, the means to do it. Yeah, I think that I, mean, that, I think that kind of um, it, it's a sort of similar themes to what we discussed earlier about some natural England and in the Environment mm. Agency. That that sure. um, one of the concerns around net gain is is that councils don't have that in house expertise to to handle these these applications and sort of really really struggling at the moment. So I think that's um, that's a key question. Um, in in terms of other abuses, there, there are what one one thing that I've I've seen anecdotally sort of um, talked about is is around. Um, developers bulldozing sites prior to application in in order to what? yeah so so the environment act does it does contain provisions to prevent developers from deliberately or otherwise degrading habitats before permission has been granted um and so and, they can say well i've improved it because yeah, there's, before there's it, no biodiversity yeah. so <laughs> yeah i killed everything put so a few, few flowers in and that'll be a good god yeah so so i mean i think that that needs that needs more investigation but if that is genuinely happening that that's clearly not not a very good thing at all yeah, it, it does sound like it's going to need a lot of policing and it does sound like we're going to need the regulators to be firing on all cylinders to exactly. do that. Yes. Uh, mm. But thank you, Jamie. That was a really interesting deep dive and we're going to be keeping our beady eyes very, very firmly trained on this issue. Now we're back with Simon Pickstone and Gareth Simpkins, affectionately known as the Chemical Brothers. And today they want you to fret about pesticides, those neonics to be precise. Thank you, Rachel. Well, today I thought we could discuss something that is common knowledge among the chemical cognoscenti, but perhaps less well-known among the public. It is perfectly possible, and indeed rather common, for chemicals banned from use in the UK to be produced here so long as they are exported. This was highlighted again by the investigative arm of Greenpeace and the Swiss NGO Public Eye recently. Their report focused on the scale of neonicotinoid pesticides being made in the EU and UK, where they are generally prohibited from outdoor use to be sold to other parts of the world. Neonicotinoids, or neonics for short, are systemic pesticides, seeds being coated with them before they are sown so the chemicals penetrate plants as they grow. This makes them lethal through nibbling or indeed nectar-sucking insects. 
Better known as bees or butterflies, I guess. Quite so, quite so. As the NGOs revealed, European and UK chemicals manufacturers are exporting thousands of tonnes of neonics each year, despite the ban, which has of course been in place since 2018. The government has granted so-called emergency authorizations for uh, the use of neonics, but has since indicated that they will not do so again. And I do have some sympathy with farmers, actually. Um, the flea beetle they need to control can absolutely rip through sugar beet crops. And this is people's livelihoods after all. I mean, I, I think you'll probably have a lot of people greens up in arms at this point, Gareth, with your sympathy for the neonic industry. Um, but given these chemicals are technically banned, both in the EU and the UK, what strikes me is it seems reasonable to think that their export would also be banned. How, how, how has this happened? It's being extremely generous, it's an oversight. Being uh, more realistic, it's not caring about the environmental impacts abroad while preserving um, industrial profits. So just how, how big is the problem? Well, over the last four months of 2020, EU member states and the UK exported 3,859 tonnes of banned neonic-based products containing the ingredients thiomexan, imadicloprid and clothianidine wow. to 60... <laughs> wow, indeed. 3,859 tonnes, folks. That's a lot. Anyway, these were exported to 65 countries, largely low or middle income. Brazil, Russia, Ukraine, Argentina, Iran, Indonesia, and so on and so forth. Where it so happens the EU and the UK happen to actually then import a lot of agricultural produce, right? Quite so. Uh, almost all of it was made by pesticide producer Syngenta. Anyway, the scale of this trade is, was not exactly a revelation to me. The UK was one of the last places in the world that produced tetraethyl lead, that is, the lead in leaded petrol, despite it being banned from road fuel here decades ago. It was all exported, of course, and the dwindling global market for it led the firm that produced it into bribing officials in developing countries to keep it in their fuel. It was all eventually exposed and led to jail time for the culprits. So what you're saying here, Gareth, is the UK has a long and glorious history of exporting toxic chemicals abroad. I would not necessarily use the word glorious in this context. Uh, back to neonics. Last year, the European Commission committed to ending the uh, EU factories manufacturing banned chemicals for export. But that measure is yet to be put in place. And it's radio silence on the subject from Whitehall, so far as I can understand it. Uh, though there are rumours that it could be addressed in the forthcoming chemical strategy. When are we, when are we expecting the chemical strategy? Um, chemical strategy should be out around the um, end of the year. End of the year. I suppose the UK could collectively say that, hey, we're not the worst offender. And yes, most was exported from Belgium, France and Germany, followed by Spain and Greece. But it's a point of principle, isn't it? We're still doing it. And it's hypocrisy of the highest order. Now, in the interest of scrupulous fairness, I should quote uh, what a spokesman for Syngenta said. We fully stand by the safety and effectiveness of Thiomexam. We are committed to making sure that whenever possible, farmers can continue to have access to a leading technology. The many emergency authorisations granted by various EU countries show that farmers need this technology to protect their crops. These EU countries have sophisticated health-based regulatory systems and they have approved it for use. And on Bayer's part, which exploited 138 tonnes of the chemicals over the four-month period of, uh, at the end of 2020, said it accepts the EU decision to discontinue the approval of neonics. Although, and we quote, we would like to highlight that regulators worldwide have reconfirmed the safe use of these products after diligent review. The mere fact that a plant protection product is not authorised or is banned in the EU says nothing about its safety, he added. I mean, I don't want to be too cheeky here, but I would think that it would say something about its safety. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I think we can make that conclusion pretty strongly. 
So that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to our editor Jamie Carpenter and journalist Tess Colley, Gareth Simpkins and Simon Pickstone. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to energyreport.com where you'll find more detail than you could possibly ever need. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time. The Eco Chamber was produced by Are Bambala from Rethink Audio.